And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. And begin with verse uh, 24. I read that, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer. And he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh the diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirmeth the word of his servant. That confirmeth the word of his servant. Now we are confronted at this point with one of the most magnificent miracles of prophecy that you do have in the Bible. It is utterly fantastic, so much so that men just can't believe that it is possible that a thing like this could take place. God, God is going to confirm the word of his prophets. And the false prophets, he's going to frustrate them. He's going to make the liars mad and the diviners will be foolish. But the true prophets, the ones to whom he spoke, their words will be fulfilled. They will be confirmed. And our Savior expressed this principle. It runs all through the Bible. Every period of the Bible where the prophets were speaking, you had the false ones on one hand and the true ones on the right hand. And the false ones were frustrated and they were made out to be liars. And the true ones, they had their word confirmed. But the key to this, so far as the significance of it, would you turn to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John? The 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John and in the 19th verse, our Savior is speaking, and of course he's referring here to his own ministry, but this principle applies throughout the whole scripture. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. I tell you about this before it takes place. So that when it does take place, you'll believe that my word was true and that I am the Messiah and I'm all that God has revealed and promised that I would be. Now, beloved, that has in it the great evidential, the evidential force of fulfilled prophecy. The force of fulfilled prophecy. And one of the ways in which God ratified and uh, confirmed, or rather sealed, his prophets was that what they said came to pass. And when it came to pass, they said, well, this man's a prophet. He has the word of God. And when you run through the Old Testament, you find that there were false prophets who were inspired by the devil, and the true prophets, they were inspired by God. And the test of a real prophet was that if what he said came to pass, and he were asking you to serve the true God, well, then he was a real prophet. But if he had some sign that came to pass, he giveth us a sign, it cometh to pass, and the Egyptian soothsayers and astrologers, they work signs up to a certain limit. 
But if they asked you to follow another God, then you were to leave them alone. A prophet who gives you signs, and these signs come to pass, and he asks you to follow the law and the word of Moses, he's all right. No true prophet will ever ask anybody to go contrary to the word of God. Never will. So the signs and the miracles that are wrought are to the end that the word of God will be confirmed and that the word of God in the message of life will be ratified. Now this phenomena of fulfilled prophecy, prophecies made and centuries pass and then they're fulfilled, is one of the reasons why we believe the Bible to be the word of God. But it's also one of the great realities of Scripture that is such a stumbling block and such an offense to the ungodly and to the natural mind. And those who won't take the Bible and those who don't want to believe it, they're just going to explain these things some other way and try to get around it. And that is exactly what the higher critical attack upon the Bible set out to do. They didn't believe it to begin with. It was simply the words of men. And when they came to these difficult passages where prophecies were involved, they had to detour, they had to get around them, they had to reorganize, and so they proceeded to do it. And in this case, in Isaiah, where we have the name of, I of Cyrus given in the neighborhood of 200 years before he was ever king of Persia, we are confronted with a tremendous thing because Cyrus was a pagan king. He wasn't in any way connected with the kingdom of Israel or the house of Jacob or anybody else. He was a pagan king and he was the head of a great world empire of power. And God named him 200 years before he ever came and ruled. And it is a phenomenon, there is no doubt about that. And in the prophecy in Isaiah, let's look at that first for just a minute. This 44th chapter of Isaiah. And then the 45th chapter of Isaiah, these two great chapters. You have the reference to uh, Cyrus, King Cyrus. The latter part of the 44th chapters. That saith of Cyrus, here's God saying, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Now Isaiah lived and prophesied around 750 B.C. And Cyrus was around 550, 540 in that period B.C. So roughly speaking, you've got a period here of around 200 years. Chapter 45. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. He became a world conqueror, of course. And then we move down to verse uh, 3. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I am the Lord which called thee by thy name. 
I have called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. And there it is. This is Isaiah speaking. Well, before I go ahead and put all this together and let you see how the picture... No, let me put the picture together for you first. What Isaiah is here talking about is reported in the Bible. It's reported in Ezra. Will you turn to the first chapter of Ezra? Now, I want to tell you people, as we move along, that I'm not going to get through tonight. I'm not going to get through tonight because I'm going to get into some pretty deep things and some pretty glorious things here for you to see. And we're moving into a period here of prophecy. You'll turn to the first chapter of the book of Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, if you want some help. Joe, Psalms, Proverbs is way over there right after Second Chronicles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now he goes talking about Jeremiah here because we're going to get Jeremiah in the picture too in just a moment. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Thus saith, the Lord, saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, that's what the Lord said he was going to do. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? Is God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel? He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Now I'm not going to go further and read that decree. But now I want you to turn with me back to Jeremiah. And let's turn to the 25th, the 29th, the 33rd chapter. Right through here you have these great prophecies of Jeremiah. But let's look first at the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. Verse 10. <clears throat> For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. <coughs> Jeremiah was speaking of this seventy year, predicting their captivity and their exile. <coughs> and now he says, Thus saith the Lord, after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Then turn over to the 33rd chapter of the prophecies of Jeremiah. And you have quite a section too here. But notice if you will. Verse 7. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at first. And this section runs all down through here to the 17th verse. 
of this chapter in which and I will cleanse from them all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned. Now will you turn with me please to the prophecies of Daniel. And in the prophecies of Daniel the fifth chapter we uh, read down in verse uh, uh, 31, you have the account of the great banquet feast of Belshazzar and how that night uh, the armies of Darius the Mede came in and took the city, meeny, meeny, tickle you farson. And then you turn over to the sixth chapter of Daniel in verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, or Darius, Darius, and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And so right after Darius came Cyrus in the record and the report that you have here. Then will you turn with me please to the ninth chapter of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now let's put it together. Let's put it together. Here is Isaiah, 750 years before Christ. Warning of the awful judgment that's going to come to them because they turn from their sins. They're going to go into exile. And a Persian king by the name of Cyrus would be raised up of God, his anointed. And under Cyrus, they would be given the privilege of going back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple. And Cyrus is named. Then you move on down another hundred years and you're coming to a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, he's denouncing them for their sin and telling them that the judgment's going to be exiled. They're going to be carried off to Babylon. He tells them it's Babylon. He calls the Babylon by name. And he proceeds to tell them it's going to be 70 years. When you get over there, you're going to be 70 years under the iron heel of that terrible tyrant and you're going to be the slaves in Babylon. And of course, one or two of these false prophets, they got up and said, well, now, Jeremiah, doesn't know what he's talking about. You may go to Babylon, but you'll only stay there two years. And all of that, you read in the prophecies of Jeremiah, we've been touching on them, but Jeremiah was the one who said 70 years, 70 years, 70 years. Then you move on down to around 550 in that period, and you've got this man Daniel over in exile. And Daniel's there, you know, and how God lifted up Daniel. And the whole story of Daniel's a magnificent thing as he comes into places of power with Nebuchadnezzar and interprets his dream. And now Daniel continues through this period of Darius and he comes down to the time of Cyrus himself. And he mentions Cyrus. And then, beloved, we have in this ninth chapter of Daniel one of the most magnificent time prophecies that you have in all the Bible. I'd like to just read you that tonight, but I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to show you how it's tied in here. 
And Daniel's praying, and he's the 70, the 70 years before him. And as he confesses the sins and prays for Jerusalem that they can go back, Gabriel comes and stands by his side. And Gabriel tells him he's greatly beloved. And then Gabriel proceeds to tell him that there shall be 70 weeks from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem and Messiah the Prince. And you have a prophecy there of 70 weeks with seven years in each week. Cyrus's name, 200 years before it takes place. Jeremiah, 100 years coming along, 70 years in captivity. Daniel comes along and here he is in Babylon weeping by the willows. And here he is being called of God in these mighty, mighty revelations that are contained in the book of uh, Daniel and which are repeated and you find an interweaving of them in the book of Revelation. And now he says the 70 years that, da that, that uh, Jeremiah said would be fulfilled and Daniel said, I study that book. And I see from that book, we're getting near the end of the time that, Dan, that, that Jeremiah said this, this captivity would continue. And so he prays to God, oh, I see in the book, I see in the prophecies that it's going to take place. And he prays and then Gabriel comes and it's the same Gabriel that spoke to the Virgin Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of our Lord. And Gabriel comes with this message and he speaks to Daniel and then he outlines for him this great prophecy, 70 weeks. Now, 70 years captivity, 70 weeks, and each week is made up of seven years, and uh, they're broken down into these various divisions of seven, and then 29, I'll be giving you that a little later. But, beloved, you have a tie from Cyrus clear back down through the interlocking and the overlapping of these prophecies until you land at Messiah the Prince. And we have here at this point, you know, you go through the Bible in the days of Moses, and then you come to Elijah, and then you come to these other periods. But here's a period of Israel's tribulation, when because of her sins she's put into exile. And the church today doesn't talk about this aspect of the Bible so much, and many of us don't know too much about it. But just in these periods you have this tremendous testimony to the word of God. How he confirmed the word of Isaiah. He confirmed the word of Jeremiah. He confirmed the word of Daniel. And all of these things came to pass literally 70 years. And the 70 weeks will be literal too, beloved. And so they make fun of us fundamentalists and say that we're literalists. But will you remember there in that day when Anna went into the temple and when Simeon went into the temple and they looked for the consolation of Israel? Those believers at the time of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ were the same kind of believers that Daniel was. Daniel studied the book of Jeremiah and he saw 70 years. And the early believers there as the Lord Jesus Christ came as a little babe, they went into the temple. They were looking. They saw the 70 years. They saw the 70 weeks. They saw Isaiah's naming of Cyrus and they held on to that mighty prophecy. They saw Jeremiah talking about 70 years years and they held on to that prophecy and they saw Daniel and all the things that Daniel had said especially the ninth chapter of Daniel that's it that's where you have the mighty prophecy of the 70 weeks now I'm not going to go into that tonight 
But I think I will get into it before we finish this line of prophetic study that we've run into as a result of the way we got started. Now that's the way it, it fits itself together. What would you think if 200 years ago when this country was just a colony, we were just a colony, if uh, some prophet had arisen in the land and said that 200 years later a president by the name of Truman would recognize the state of Israel. That's what he did. Well, here was Isaiah, a prophet, saying that there would arise a, a, a world leader by the name of Cyrus. And under Cyrus, the children of Israel would be released from their captivity. And they would go back to the land of their fathers. They would rebuild Jerusalem. And they would rebuild the temple. Beloved, you and I are in possession of one of the most tremendous things that has ever... There's nothing like it. This is the word of God. The God who made the creation produced this book. The God who knows the end from the beginning, he produced this book. And he's the one who's constantly confirming the words of his prophets. And we do take this book literally. Now, let me show you what these critics do with it. They, they have a terrible time with some of these things. It's a shame they don't believe it. It's just a shame they don't believe it. They'd, they'd be all right. They'd all fit together nicely when you believe it. But when you don't believe it, you really have a problem on your hands. And I told you people that out here at the University of Washington, they had this syllabus, you know, on the study of uh, the Bible as literature. And they won't take the Bible as it represents itself. They've got to bring all this high critical attack on the Bible, the whole thing in there. And I've been preaching on it these last few nights. And let me read you now what they have to say about this fellow Cyrus. Let me read you what they got in this study book. This is English. Isaiah. Most biblical scholars believe that there's a gap of over a century and a half between chapters 39 and 40 of the book of Isaiah. And that the prophet whose words are recorded in the chapters after 39 was living in exile in Babylon around 540 B.C. Isaiah is not mentioned by name in this part of the book. And the Persian king Cyrus, mentioned in 4428, flourished between 550 and 530 B.C., conquering Babylon in 538. Of course, we do not know the name of this prophet. Isn't that interesting? Here they've got Isaiah's book here, you know, and it's here. But they run into the name Cyrus. And they said nobody could possibly have ever predicted that name in advance. So we got to somehow or other split the thing up here and say that after the 40th chapter, that was written by somebody who lived when Cyrus lived, or at least about that time and knew Cyrus was the king. And so that's the way we got it in there. Purely speculative. Born of unbelief. 
There's no evidence, there's no basis in any documents, in anything that anybody has ever found anywhere that justifies this. And you folks have heard about these scrolls, you know, these Old Testament scrolls that they found recently in the prophecies of Isaiah. And back there, there's no split in them either then. Still the same old record, it all tied together. Nobody's been able to find the thing split. Nobody's been able to find any evidence anywhere of any kind, in any books, in any archaeology, or anywhere whatsoever that there are two or three Isaiah or that one of them was an unknown prophet. Well, naturally, Isaiah identifies himself as writing the book. He wrote the whole thing. He didn't stop after every other chapter and say, I'm still writing, I'm still writing, I'm still writing, I'm still writing. He writes his book. Uh, How do they write books today? You have an introduction, so-and-so's got his name at the top of the book, and about halfway through, the fellow says, I'm still writing, I'm preparing myself against the higher critics a thousand years from now. Is that the way they operate? We don't write books that way. Isaiah didn't write books that way. Isaiah put his name, he was living, he was a prophet, and he spoke. But they can't believe it. If they do believe it, If these men who study this book in the universities run on to this name Cyrus and believe that Cyrus had his name given by God 200 years before he ever reigned, they'd throw him out of the university as a lunatic. Why, the university can't accept the supernatural. We don't deal with things like that in the realm of scholarship, you must understand. Did you ever see anything? But here it is. And it's one of the most beautiful prophecies. I don't have any trouble with it. This is only 200 years. And thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the princes of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, who shall be governor in Israel. That's 750 years before it took place. What's the difference between naming Bethlehem and naming Cyrus? And whatever God could do it if he wanted to. And that's not all. You turn over to Zechariah, we're told that when the Lord comes in his glorious revelation, which is yet to take place, when he comes with the hosts of heaven from one end of the heavens to the other, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And when I see Cyrus, it's Cyrus. And when I see Bethlehem, it's Bethlehem. And when I see the Mount of Olives, it will be the Mount of Olives. And the times that I've been up there, I've been up on top of the Mount of Olives myself, now at least twice. And when you get up on the top of that Mount of Olives, you've got two strange sensations. One of them is that this is where he stood when he last left, and this is where he stood when he's going to come back. My, what a sensation to go on the top of the Mount of Olives. This is where his feet last touched the earth. And he ascended up into the heavens and the cloud received him out of his sight. And when he comes back down to this earth after the rapture, and we've been carried into the heavens and after the awful tribulation, he's going to plant his feet again upon this earth in which you and I live and where the dust is that makes our bodies. And when he touches this earth, it'll be at the top of the Mount of Olives. Why? Because he's going to confirm the words of his prophets. And Jesus Christ says, I've told you before it come to pass, in order that when it does come to pass, ye may believe. And beloved, if you're going to deal with the Bible, you have to believe. If you're going to deal with the Almighty God, 
you have to believe him. And he's given us in this book, and I tell you people again tonight, we have in this Bible a special revelation. No other book that has ever been produced and no other book that will ever be produced can come anywhere near being like this book or even being in the same category with it. This is the inspired word of God. And the God who created the universe sent his son. And in the preparation for the coming of the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent, God Almighty gave us a record through the prophets and through the apostles. And we can believe it. You know what this does to you, beloved? It makes your own soul rejoice in the fact that you've already believed the message to the saving of your soul. Bethlehem, Cyrus, it's there. But oh, it's there for one purpose, that you will believe the word of that prophet. And if you believe the word of that prophet, then you will be saved. And you will be born into the kingdom of God and you will become a child of God by grace and through faith. Why do we neglect this book? Why do we not study it and read it and search out these mighty things? What's wrong with it? What's happening to us? Why aren't the churches just filled on Sunday night with preachers standing in the pulpit saying, Cyrus, here's his name. And if a God could name the head of the Babylonian or the Persian Empire at this point, at least 200 years before he ever arrived down here to be the head of it. Don't you think you ought to believe in him and trust him and take him at his word? Depend upon him to go before you and to deliver you from your enemies and to comfort you in your sorrow and then to take you home to be with Jesus when he opens the gates of heaven and calls you into the presence of the Lamb of God. I'm telling you people more and more these last days, if we're going to be Christians, let's be Christians. Let's take everything God's given us. Let's believe everything he's set before us. And let's be this peculiar kind of people. Isn't it interesting in these days that we get called all these names? I've been called about every name under heaven that I can have. I'm a hate monger. I'm an extremist. You all these names. But up to this time, nobody's called me a peculiar person. They don't read the Bible, I guess. The Bible says I am peculiar. I'll accept that one. We're exceedingly peculiar. We believe that God named Cyrus. And now will you turn with me please to this passage in Isaiah. Look how all of this is put together. When, when you read it and you put it together, you say, my, my, the Lord knew all these things were going to happen. The Lord knew that these days were going to come and we'd be set upon ourselves with so much difficulty. Look at this 44th chapter, verse 25. He's the one that frustrateth the tokens of the liars and makes the diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. And it's in the name of the wise men, the educated men, the university men. It's in the name of the knowledge that these men have obtained that they are rejecting the Bible, reorganizing it, setting up an entirely different structure for the whole thing, throwing out Cyrus, throwing out anything that has any prophecies connected with it. And God says, just give me time. They'll all be foolish when I get through fulfilling my word. 
Just give me time. They'll all be completely frustrated when I get through fulfilling the word that I've said that I would fulfill. Now, next Sunday night, I'm going to go on with this matter. I'm going to take you over to Daniel. Do you know what they've done with Daniel in this university book here? Well, they have a lot of trouble with Daniel because even though Daniel lived in the time of, uh, of Cyrus and even though Daniel lived in the time when they had the 70 years coming to a close and Daniel uh, saw this development, the return to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem and knew Ezra and I'm sure he knew Nehemiah, even though Daniel knew these things, Daniel made the awful mistake of going ahead with some additional predictions. And his predictions went on over for another three or four hundred years, the ones he made up. No, the ones the Lord gave him. And when you get to the ninth chapter of Daniel, you've got the prophecy concerning the Messiah, the Prince, and then you have the prophecy concerning the man of sin, that evil one who shall come and he shall make a covenant in these last days, and you've got that situation developing. And I want to tell you people, I think you and I are going to live to see the day when the head of the Roman Catholic Church or the reunited Protestantism, if they get that far, is going to make some kind of an agreement with the communist world. And they're going to make some kind of an agreement that will satisfy the Jews so far as the occupancy of Palestine is concerned. We're moving right into that area right now. And these are the things that are touched upon in Daniel. But when you get into Daniel, you come to the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel, and what do you have in the 11th chapter? You have Antiochus Epiphanes, you have Alexander the Great, and you have a catalog of characters who stood on a stage of history 200, 400, 300 years after Daniel, and they're all there in such a magnificent order that these educated men look at it and say, well, that, nobody could have written that. We'll have to redate Daniel and put his prophecies after those things took place. And so all in the world these great scholars are doing, they're looking at the Bible, they run into to, uh, uh, Cyrus, and they say, well, we've got to move this thing back over here and figure out some way to explain it. And then they run into Daniel, and then they find, well, here Daniel's got Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's got Alexander the Great, and he's got these other, so we've got to remove that thing back over here. So that Daniel was talking about these things, or whoever did write them, of course, Daniel, they, they admit Daniel lived back there when he's supposed to, but they don't think he wrote his book. His book was written by these priests and they just stuck his name on there to make it dignified. That's all that happened. And so they've got this struggle. Beloved, it's so much easier just to believe it like it is. It's so much easier just to accept what God has said would come to pass and it has come to pass. But why does God give us here in his book these magnificent statements? Cyrus under Isaiah. Seventy years under Jeremiah. The return actually taking place under Daniel and Daniel's connection with Gabriel. He wants us to see the continuity of it all. And as God Almighty spoke to his people through the prophecies and the spanning of the centuries, our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and he said, I've told you myself before it came to pass. I told you I was going to be crucified. I told you I was going to be scourged. I told you they'd spit upon me. I told you that on the third day I would be raised again from the dead. And I told you these things, he said, before it came to pass. 
that when I was crucified and when I came out of the tomb, ye would then believe my word. And believing my word, you would believe to the salvation of your soul. And you would be delivered from sin and the penalties and the judgment of eternal separation from God in a hell. My beloved, it's just so wonderful to believe it and just accept it and to see this magnificent phenomena that presents itself. This is revelation. This is prophecy. This is miraculous. This is something that the men of the world look up and they're, they're, they're absolutely in confusion. Who shall believe our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. And who is that? Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 750 years before Messiah was born and put his ministry before the world in the 33 and a half years. A tender plant, dry ground, the virgin birth. He hath no form nor comeliness. He hath no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to put him to shame it was for the transgressions of my people that he suffered Isaiah 53 oh they have to relegate that to some unknown fellow and that's what they do but it's Christ it was Isaiah and what's so beautiful about it Jesus Christ over there in his own ministry reaches back and speaks about Isaiah writing of me and he quotes from Isaiah 53. So you can't tear it away. You can't split it up. You can't destroy it. And yet that's what they're trying to do. But remember this passage tonight says here in Isaiah that God will confirm the word of his prophet. God will bring to pass that which he has said he will fulfill. And that's the God of creation. I am the Lord. And I can't help but wonder, oh, I can't help but wonder. I think of Nebuchadnezzar, he told him to go out and eat grass until he learned that the Most High ruled in the councils of men. And I can't help but wonder when Cyrus came to power and he saw these things, how God gave him his kingdom, I can't help but wonder... If somebody didn't say, Cyrus, here's Isaiah's book. It was written by Isaiah 200 years ago. And look, he called you by name. And though you haven't known him, he's called you by name. And Cyrus, that was put in there by the God of these slaves. You let them go back to Jerusalem and let them build the temple. And Cyrus, you believe that the God of the Jews is the true God. You believe that the God of the children of Jacob is the true God. I can't help but believe in my own heart that that's what happened. Cyrus looked at Isaiah and he saw his name. He saw his kingdom. 
He saw what God was going to do with him. And he says, here's the decree. I'll sign it with my own hand. Go back to Jerusalem. And then Daniel comes along. And he says, from the beginning of the decree to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 70 weeks. And that spans the period from the exile to the crucifixion of the Son of God. It's a time prophecy. It's in there. It was real. And some of the Jews saw it and looked for their Messiah when he came the first time. But there is no time prophecy for us for the second coming. Because our Savior said, No man knoweth the day nor the hour. Can't find any time schedules in there for this one. And when he comes in the second glorious appearing, he says, Watch, watch, for in an hour that ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And that's our hope. Let us pray. O oh Lord, bless the message, bless the truth of thy word. It's so different. It's so far into anything that men think about today. It's so glorious. We have been redeemed. And we have been grafted in to the olive tree. The wild branches have been put back into this great succession. And we see it. And we thank thee for it. For Christ's sake, amen. Beloved, if you're not saved tonight, if you're not born again tonight, I want to tell you the Word of God is true. It is true from the beginning. And you'll believe it and you'll trust it. And then let's preach it and learn more about it and rejoice in what God has given us as His people. All right, let's close now. 375, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee.